Hi, this is Cole, and you're listening to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Today, I have the good fortune to talk with someone who's been a great inspiration to me, Alberto Cairo. Alberto is the Knight Chair in Visual Journalism at the University of Miami, author of a number of books, including The Functional Art and The Truthful Art, and is currently working on another. Listen to us discuss truth with a lowercase t, his visual trumpery tour and collaboration with Google News Lab, how every citizen is becoming a data journalist and parallels between data visualization and writing. Stay tuned to the end where you'll hear a tip on how to make your children better data storytellers. Coming up next. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Affleck. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Welcome, Alberto. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, I want to start off with a little anecdote. I, I don't know if you remember this, but I can recall the, I think it's the very first time that you and I spoke and it was over the phone and I was sitting in my house in LA. And I remember this because I wasn't in LA very long and I was pregnant with my first son at the time. So probably would have put our conversation in something like fall of 2012. Do you remember this? Mm -hmm. I, I remember that we talked on the phone, but I don't remember how we got in touch yeah, the first I'd, time. I'd reached out because I was just starting to think about writing a book. And uh, mm -hmm. I think this was right after your book, Functional Art, came out. And so mm -hmm. I just read that and had already been an avid follower of your blog of the same name and, and had reached out to ask you about your process. Mm -hmm. And I just yes. remember, you, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember thinking how neat that was, uh, one, to be talking to you, but secondly, just how kind and open you were about sharing your experiences. I, I remember the conversation really well, and it's a, it's a kind of conversation that I have had with several people who have tried to write books throughout mm -hmm. the years. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I mean, it's not, I, I, I wouldn't call it kindness. I would call it sharing. And it, it's something that I have learned working in the in the information graphics industry, where yeah. most people, with just a few exceptions, are extremely generous with their time and with their sharing their skills and their knowledge, etc. So, I'm always have always been a believer in that in the fact that um, you know lifting all boats, if it is yes. possible, helps everybody in the community, right? Yeah, I, that's lovely. I, lo I love that sentiment. And I think that's something that over the years, I've really appreciated about your work in general. There, There is this genuine feeling that you're sharing your experiences in such a generous way and in this effort, right, to raise the boats, like you said, and make everyone better. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm super excited uh, to be talking with you today. And I have some questions uh, for you and some topics I want to make sure that we hit. Uh, but first, mm -hmm. for those listening who might not be familiar with Alberto Cairo, uh, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you spend your time on? And maybe <laughs> for starters, because I, I know you have kids. So uh, you yes. know, one of your kids comes to you and says, Dad, what do you do? How, how do you characterize that to them? Um, well, it's 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 the same way that I explain my job to my dad or to my mom or uh, to my grandparents when they were alive, and they they were a little bit puzzled about what I do. I I usually explain what I do, saying that I explain things with illustrations or with visuals. 
that's what I do. And remember, you need to remember that I began my career as an infographics designer for the news industry, for, for newspapers back in Spain where I was born. And in the news industry, the word infographic has a different meaning than it has in the marketing industry, for instance. An, info, an infographic in the news industry used to mean an illustration-based visual explanation, pictorial explanation of news events, right? A, you know, car accidents or airplane crashes or terrorist attacks or floodings, natural catastrophes. We used to produce, you know, these these beautiful uh, illustrations, cutaways, etc., of um, a of of those events. And so I come from that tradition, the mm -hmm. tradition of visual explanations. It is only that later on in my career, uh, this happened around between 2008, 2010, etc. I started getting interested in the complementary field of data visualization. I started seeing the commonalities between pictorial visualization, which is basically what I had been doing up to that up to that point, and data visualization. And those commonalities lie in the fact that you know both fields or both branches of visualization are devoted to clarify. Um, insights or stories uh, to inform audiences, to inform people. When you talk about clarifying insights, where where are you doing that? Do you mean what what, what I'm working on at the moment? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm working in a number in a number of things. So um, I, I am a professor, as you know. So I, I I still teach my classes at the University of Miami. I have my data introduction to data visualization class, and I also teach. 3D modeling and animation, all right? So I teach both pictorial visualization and data visualization. But at the same time, um, I think that I have grown a little bit tired of talking to specialists. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy talking to you <laughs> or, to other, or to other people in the visualization community, but I think that I would be more productive and, and a little bit more valuable if I could start focusing a little, focusing a little bit more on the people who don't belong to the community yet, I am a, I'm a great believer that visualization of all kinds, pictorial, data, scientific, it's a kind of language that can be grasped and understood by anybody and embraced by anybody. So in the past year, couple of years, I started. You know, you know that I, I got in, in, in I got into a into a lecture tour, and I'm writing a new book right now. Um, but the, the the work that I'm doing at the moment is a it's a much more elementary level kind of work. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, here is the fancier the fancy new visualization form that the visualization community is going to enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. the, the new you know bullet graph or the new horizon chart, something like that. All the I'm I'm still working on that, right? So I'm still you know inter interested in 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 innovation in data visualization and the collaboration that I have with the Google News Lab is focused on that on that side um, on on innovating in visualization and creating new ways of expressing data and showing data to people. But I, I am devoting most of my time these these days to thinking about ways in which we can explain visualization to the general public. So here's what where what I'm heading at the moment. And what has prompted that shift? You say you're growing tired of talking to experts, want to get this language out there in an elementary way that, that anybody can uh, use and, and understand. What's driving you in that direction, do you think? Well, I, I mean, 
I cannot talk about the community in general. I can only talk about myself. And there are several reasons why I decided to start focusing a little bit more on this side. Again, not abandoning the innovative part of data visualization, which is something that I focus on in my collaboration with the Google News Lab. Mm -hmm. But it came, first of all, from an assessment of why what my strengths and shortcomings really are. So I'm not a you know I'm not a talented programmer. You know, I'm not a coder, for example. I'm very bad at coding. I code a little <laughs> bit in R and I know a little bit of you know the tidyverse and ggplot and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But I'm not a you know high end uh, computer programmer that can create super fancy and super innovative data visualizations. I'm more of a you know meat and potato meat and potatoes designer, all time designer, uh, who can I don't think that I can contribute that much uh, myself to 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 new graphic forms or uh, so I, I decided. Well, I, I said what 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 can I do well? And what I have always enjoyed is is teaching people. Um, the basic level of this kind of this kind of language. I began my career doing that, but my career as a teacher, uh, doing that, and I, it's what I enjoy the most. I enjoy, you know, showing people, open, pe- open, opening people's eyes to 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 the power of data visualization and the, the power of charts and the power of maps to tell the stories. And I believe that uh, there's already great people doing super. Uh, innovative work in data visualization already, and I don't think that I can contribute that much to that. But I can help, you know, bringing the public up to speed with all these new, you know, these new languages, etc. Yeah, that's fantastic. You've mentioned the Google News Lab a couple of times, and you know you're uh-huh. collaborating yes. with them. Can you tell us more about this? Oh yeah, so I have I have so I, I have several full time jobs. So my my main full time job is a professor at the University of Miami, but I also have I also work as a consultant for different companies. And my main gig at the moment is a, an ongoing collaboration with the Google News Lab. And the way this collaboration works is that Google basically says, you know, we have all the we are sitting on on top of all these data, search data, YouTube data, etc. And we want to start using it and, and show it to the public mm-hmm. uh, up to a point, obviously, but because they are, uh, there are uh, security concerns and, and privacy concerns, but up to a point that data can be publicly shared. And actually, you can access it if you go to the Google Trends website, which I believe that is trends.google.com or something like that. You can see search interest over time. You can search for a term and see how the interest for searching for that term has increased or decreased throughout the years. So basically, you can get that kind of get that kind of data from all over the world since the year I believe two thousand and five or something like that. So Google said, "What about if we invite, you know, some of the most talented visualization designers in the world to start doing projects for us?" So that that's how the project started. And then Simon Rogers, who is one of the uh, one of the heads of the Google News Lab, uh, contacted me saying, "You know, would you like to be?" Sort of the middleman in these in these project, right? Being the, like some sort of project manager, mm-hmm. art director for these uh, for these projects. So we would provide the data. These designers will create their projects, and you will be sort of in the middle, coordinating these efforts and talking to each one of these designers every single week to keep an eye on on their progress. So so far, we have done projects with uh, Moritz Stefaner and Georgia Lupi, all you know, all the big names that you can think of right now in the data visualization world in terms of innovation and and pushing the field forward uh, in the future. 
forward. Um, I, we have probably done a project with them. Shaquin Gonzalez, who used to be the head of graphics at The Guardian, also did a project with us. So yeah, it's a, it's a part of the uh, part of my life that I really enjoy, if, mainly because I get to talk to all these people mm-hmm. on a on a weekly basis and learn from them, and then you know provide my limited feedback on on what they are doing. I I, I provide my thoughts. You know, I navigate their prototypes and I take a look at the visualizations that they produce and I say, you know, well, this thing here confuses me or perhaps these other, you know, this other portion of the graphic could be visualized in a different way, etc. So it's mostly our direction, what I do in this, in this project. Yeah. And what's been most revealing, do you think, from this work that you've seen so far? Well, it has been very revealing in the sense that uh, it shows you that, uh, which is something that I already knew, right? But it has something that I corroborated, which is that visualization is at, at the same time, it's it's both a science and an art form. It's a craft that is based both both on intuitions in terms of what you can design and how and, and whether things will work or not. And it's certainly based on what we know about human visual perception and visual cognition. But it, when it comes to deciding how to show how to show the data, the way that you frame the data and that you show it to people depends on many factors, not only effectiveness in the presentation, but also on the um, uh, on the visual appeal, mm-hmm. for example, of the of the design, on the beauty of the of the design, also on the fact that um, sometimes you need to risk a little, take some mm-hmm. risks a little bit in terms of visualizing the data if you want to innovate again, if you want to develop, you know, new vocabulary or expand the grammar. Of graphics, so I don't know. It has been a, a quite an enjoyable, enjoyable experience, and also seeing the thinking process of of some of the most talented visualization designers out there. Sure. That's also educational. It's very educational for me. Yeah, super interesting. And I'll make sure that we link to the Google Trends that you mentioned in the show notes. Uh, uh-huh. So you're doing a ton, right? You, you talked a little bit about your teaching at the University of Miami. Uh, there's this Google News Lab collaboration, you know, the Visual Trumpery Tour, which we'll talk about more in a, in a moment. Uh, I know you're working mm-hmm. on a book. That's a ton of stuff, right? What, what drives you? What motivates you? Where do you find the energy to do so many different things? Um. <sighs> Well, the, this may sound uh, perhaps uh, as a cliche or something, but it, the, I, I don't see all this work as work. There is not clearly in my life a, a separation between what I do for a living and what mm-hmm. I do for fun. So I, one of the privileges in my life right now, one of the luxuries that I have after, after 20 years in this career is that I have been able to focus mostly on the things that I enjoy and I have been able to remove the things that I don't enjoy from my from my work life, right? So all these projects that I'm involved in give me a lot of, you know, satisfaction. I really enjoy learning all these, and I really enjoy. It brings me joy, basically. So I guess that that's the main the main motivation. I just have fun with it, and I and I feel that I'm learning a lot, and that's something that I have always valued, yeah. being able to to get new insights. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I certainly don't know. Other than, and it sounds perhaps trivial, but no, just the it fun of it and yeah, the joy and of the, it. And the joy, like I can hear it in your voice when you talk about it, uh, which is mm-hmm. great. 
So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I've had some lively discussions in my workshops lately and questions coming up, I feel like increasingly, about this idea of truth in data and Mm -hmm. bias in data. And there's a common question that goes something like, how do I take the bias out of data? Or one I got yesterday that I've gotten before, you know, how do I let the data speak for itself? Mm-hmm. And you've written a book, The Truthful Art. You've been on this visual trumpery tour that we've mentioned a couple of times that we'll talk more about momentarily. Uh, but I'm mm-hmm. curious, how, how do you characterize truth when it comes to data? Well, I characterize truth in the truthful art, I, I, and I mentioned this explicitly in the book, that I write truth with a lowercase t. So when, when people have discussions about truth or untruth, um, they usually write it in all caps, or or at least with a capital with a capital T. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's the that's the wrong framing because the the the, the question about truth is not a, a black and white question. It's not either or. It's not a Boolean variable, right? It's more like a continuous variable, and that's what what I describe in the truthful art. I see, I I visualize a spectrum in my brain between being completely untruthful, being a complete liar, mm-hmm. so to speak, and being completely truthful, which I believe that only uh, only a God could achieve, right? And so there's a spectrum. And the way that we can that we can proceed or think about this is to always strive to be closer to the to the truthful end of these of this spectrum and as farther away as we can from the untruthful end of this spectrum. And this sounds very abstract, but it is something that I believe can be done by, you know, applying honesty to our analysis of the data, applying our best knowledge and as much honesty and and, and care to the design of the graphics that we use to communicate our insights uh, to other people, to, to, you know, applying in a very disciplined, in serious way, methodologies that have been proven to be to to get us closer to that truthful end of the of the spectrum. So again, I don't see things as black and white. We will never be able to remove bias completely from the data, and we certainly we we will never never certainly be able to let the data speak for itself. Data never speaks for itself, never ever, because data is it has a rhetorical dimension. It's not the data that it matters is the interpretations that we extract from these data that really matters. And those interpretations, which can be embodied in the form of a chart or a map or a data visualization, can be truer or untruer. And that's what I explain in the book. Things are never true or untrue. They are truer or untruer, depending on how much care we put in designing them. And when you talk about this spectrum, uh, which I love, by the way, because it's something that people can you know, picture, you know, we've got the liar at one end and, you know, the, 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 as truthful as possible, the, the godlike uh, on the other end. What are common mishaps or what should we be trying to do to get more over onto that uh, positive side? Well, uh, there are many there are many techniques and there are many things that we um, I, that we can think of. And by the way, this is part of the uh, part, again part of the book that I'm writing right now for the general public and also part of the lectures that I'm giving uh, for the general public. Which is, for example, just to give you an example, uh, the old mantra that I repeat in all my books and in talks, uh, which I borrowed from designer Nigel Holmes. Um, so Nigel likes to say that infographics, referring to news infographics should never simplify they should clarify 
and there is a there is a key difference between those two things because when you think about simplification, uh, we wrongly tend to believe that simplification equals to removing information no matter what or removing data no matter what. So if you frame yourself that way, what you will end up doing is to always providing just, for example, an average. And sometimes an average can capture the reality of the underlying data. It's a good summary of the underlying distribution. But sometimes an average is not the right representation of the data because the data may be skewed, the distribution may not be normal, or most of the data points may not be close to that average, right? The range of the data could be really, really wide, or the distribution could be bimodal, and so on and so forth. Therefore, in those cases, the average, which will be a simplification, would not be a clarification. In order to clarify, you will need to increase the amount of data that you show. The way that I explain this in my workshops is to show, show an example in which I visualize, let's say, the same data set. First of all, summarizing it into a big number. Our average sales are something, something, or something like that, right? I'm making this up. Mm-hmm. But then I show, you know, you, you could go a little bit deeper into the data and show the distribution. Or you could go a little bit deeper and show the distributions per state. Or you could go e- even deeper and show every single data point. So that's a spectrum from the higher level, from the uh, most simplified way of representing the data to the, more, to the most granular way of representing the data. So that's a spectrum as well. As an analyst or as a data visualization designer, you need to make an honest assessment as to which one of those steps better represents the reality of the data without making the representation too complex. So what is the right representation in between being too simplistic and too complex? And that's the sweet spot. That's the right kind of visualization that you need to design. Yeah, which is great. And it's so situationally dependent, right? And so data dependent. Oh, I think absolutely, completely. So many yes, times yes. people want rules or they want, you know, what will always work? Should I always use an average yeah. or I should always use an average? And that's something that I, that I explain in my workshops and talks. The, the talks that I give to people who really, really want to learn how to design visualization, I usually point out that there are very few rules in data visualization. There are some principles, there are some guidelines, there are some rules of thumb, there are some recommendations. But as you said, most of them are, uh, depend a lot on the context, depend a lot on the message, depend a lot on the uh, goal that your visualization has. So you need to develop that sense, right? You begin, you can't begin by applying rules, and I'm a great believer in learning, so to speak, rules with tons of quotation marks in there. But then once you develop the sense of those rules, you really learn what the exceptions to those rules are and when it is convenient to break those rules in order to make a graphic that is much more effective. Yeah, and understanding the trade-offs, right, and designing in light of those things. It's a little bit like writing, right? It's like there there are people who, for example, take, uh, let's say... um, the elements of a style mm-hmm. at face value. And they try to apply the elements of a style as if it were the, the, the famous book, right? The elements of a style. They try to apply, they try to apply that, that book as if it were the Bible, as, as to what, how to write yeah. correctly. Yeah. And if you depart from the teachings from the elements of a style, then you're doing something wrong. And that's the wrong way of thinking about things. Visualization is a lot like writing. There are different styles. There are different ways of doing, doing visualization. And two completely different ways of doing data visualization could be equally effective at delivering the message. Therefore, there is not really, you cannot really tell whether one of them is better or worse than the other, objectively speaking. They are just different. Yes. 
Yeah, and I think that's another common misconception when it comes to visualizing data, this idea that there is a right solution. Yeah. There are better or worse solutions. Yes. Again, this all comes, I, I always think of in, in, in gradients, like in grayscales, mm -hmm. right? I never think in binary. I, I don't think that any of the choices that we have in visualization or in life for that matter are binary choices or absolute choices. Uh, you, we need to educate ourselves in, 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 in thinking in, in uncertain terms, right? Uh, it's, it's better, it, nothing is good or bad. Things are better or worse depending on the circumstances and depending on the goals that we want to achieve. So we, you've mentioned a couple of times, I've mentioned a couple of times, the, this lecture series that you have going right now, this visual trumpery tour. Uh -huh. can, can you tell me about visual trumpery, what it is, what you're trying to accomplish with it? Yeah. So the, the idea of, of this talk came to me, um, right after the, um, during actually during the, the 2016 election and right after uh, I started seeing and noticing you know tons of misuses of of graphics and data and maps and charts etc I've always been concerned about this obviously but during the election it's like we had this flood of very bad maps and very bad charts that were so to speak in quotation marks in there again, weaponized with political purposes, right? On the left and on the right, I, I see problems on both sides of the political spectrum. So I said, you know, and uh, this matches my goal of perhaps uh, helping the general public understand uh, graphics and visualization better. And perhaps I can use these to create a, a, a lecture, a public, a public lecture available to anyone that may help, you know, dispel certain myths in the minds of the general public, such as, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, which is a myth that I really loathe because it's, it's not true. It depends, again, on how the graphic is designed or the visual is designed, and it depends on the words, right? Or, 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 or the fact that many people believe that charts can be understood at a, at a quick glance, which is something that I explain very in-depth in the talk, saying, you know, a chart is like... It's not a chart is not a mere illustration. A chart is a visual argument, and it's similar to a text again. A chart will never be understood correctly if you only look at it. You really need to read it uh, with a lot of. You need to put attention uh, to the chart. So the the, the 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 talk is basically like a series of rules or principles that any person, regardless of background or prior knowledge, can apply to become better readers. Of a of charts, so it's sort of like visual literacy one on one on one. The question is why I called it visual trumpery. Well, because I wanted a catchy title, and uh, the original title of the talk was uh, something like graphicacy, which is graphical literacy, right? Is the old term to refer to graphical literacy. But the joke that I do that I make during the talk is that if I call a talk graphicacy probably half of the audience will never show up to the talk, right? Mm -hmm. But if you call the talk visual trumpery, which is a, trumpery is a wonderful word in the English language, right? People will come to the talk just because it's so uh, controversial. It sounds so controversial, although the contents of the talk are not controversial at all. It, it, what's been the response and the reaction? Oh, really, really good. I have... I've had, you know, uh, both data analysts, statisticians, and visualization designers, and non-specialists come into the talk. Tons of non-specialist people, educators. I got uh, plenty of high school teachers coming to the talk, 
and and asking asking whether they could they could use the materials that I share in their classes. And my response is always the same: Oh, absolutely! Please feel free, get everything. Uh, yes, I mean these these slides that I'm using, these materials that I put together and that I shared during the talk, they are not copyrighted. So so take them, adapt them. You know, come up with new examples that may perhaps can help you explain these principles to your students. Spread the word. So it's like a, it's like evangelizing a little bit. I compare it. I even I'm not, I'm not a particularly religious person. I, I compare this a little bit to 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 preaching, so to speak. How many of these have you done? I've done like like around twenty so far. I think I need to count it, but it's like eighteen or twenty already, and I have another seven or eight lined up for the next several months. Yeah. Busy schedule. And you, yeah, you've given these talks all over the place. I, I think you've been to California a couple of times. Yes. Kicking my, I'm always traveling when you're here, so I haven't had a chance. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Yeah. But I know you've been to you know a ton of cities here in the States, plus you know in Spain, New Zealand, Mexico, Canada. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Any differences in the different places where you've done this? I don't know if it's you know, East Coast versus West or not, North America. Not, not in the yeah. not in the United States. The response has been has been pos- positive, uh, very very positive. Um, I, I guess that it depends a little bit on 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 where I deliver the talk, right? So. Um, and who hosts the talk. Because the way this works is that I say, you know, I will go to your city. I will not charge anything for the talk. I will do it pro bono. I will do it for free. The only things that you need to come up with is a little bit of money to pay for my flight. And I fly, I'm, I'm, I'm a very cheap guest. So I, I don't need a, ver- a particularly fancy uh, flight or a particularly fancy hotel. I'm fine with almost any uh, hotel as long as it doesn't have roaches. And, <laughs> and so it's not, it doesn't, co- it doesn't cost that much to bring me to, to your city. And then you need to come up with a, with a, a auditorium, obviously. So I have been invited by universities. I went to Berkeley university to Penn state recently. Um, but I have also uh, been invited, for example, by, um, uh, by the European commission in Luxembourg. And the audiences vary a little bit. So when I went to Luxembourg, for example, most of the people in the audience were statisticians and people who work with data mostly, right? And sometimes it's people who are not a specialist. So I tried to tweak the talk a little bit, just a tiny bit, um, to adapt it to, to different audiences. When I imagine then that the the discussions or the questions that come up are likely different in some of these different audiences, just a time, but 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 not as much as you would think. One of the things that I have discovered is that one of the challenges that people who work with data have um, is how is to explain to people who don't work with data what it is that they do and how they do it in, in plain language, right? It's like how to how to translate a statistical jargon, for example, in a way that a non-specialist can understand. And that's something that really, really interests me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you crack that, right? How, how do you... Exactly. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I would like to do myself in the future, for instance, and this is a long-term, long-term plan, um, is to write perhaps a book about probabilities, like um, explaining different interpretations of probability, but again, not for specialists, but for people who don't work with data. I mean, what is 
Bayesian probability, what is frequentist probability, and explain that in, in plain language. They explain the differences and the relative strengths and shortcomings of each one of the approaches to probability uh, to the general public and explain why it matters to understand all, to understand all these things. And when it comes to the content that you're going through in these lectures, are there any nuggets you can share when it comes to you know, how, how, do, how can graphics mislead? Oh, they can mislead in many different ways. So I, I, the, the talk is a structure in, in like six, five or six different things that you need to pay attention at when you read a chart. So first of all, I explain, I, I begin by explaining very quickly uh, the grammar of, of, of graphics, basically, right? It's like I, I explain that a chart is made of uh, some sort of container, the scaffolding of the chart, basically the support, the scales, and the legends and things like that. And I explain how to read that carefully. I then explain that a chart uses some sort of uh, symbolization and encoding. I explain encoding, like length, height, position, etc. I explain that very, very quickly. I say, well, now that you have understood uh, have understood the basics, because these are the very basics, you also this, this will teach you how to read a chart. But it will not teach you how to interpret a chart. It is different. There's a difference between being able to read a chart and being able to interpret the chart. So then I move on and I start talking about how to interpret the chart. And I provide several principles such as, for instance, uh, if you have the time, all right, take a look at the primary source of the data, right? If, for example, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the chart is a chart about, let's say, um, child mortality or something like that. Take a look at the primary source and take a look at what it is that the source is is calling a child mortality. What it is what it is that they are measuring, and take a look at how they are measuring that. Because if the data is wrong, all right, the visualization necessarily will be wrong as well. So take a quick look at the source. I begin with that. Then I, I explain, you know, uh, correlational charts and the way that the, those can be can be misleading. I show time series charts and I, I explain how important it is to have a relatively good time frame, not to narrow your focus too much that, you know, uh, variations from one year to another year will look meaningful when they can be just, you know, random noise. I will. I explain also a little bit about about um, a uncertainty in the data and how important it is to take a look at very basic things such as margin of errors and things like that, and how how they can mislead when they are not shown in the yeah. chart and they are meaningful to understanding the understanding the information. I also warn people about how easy it is to be persuaded by a chart that confirms what you already believe and how important it is to stop yourself and think critically about it. I, I, I'm a great believer in obviously in, in cognitive biases. I believe that we are all the victims of our own cognitive biases. But I also believe, contrary to what cognitive psychologists say, that we can curb these biases a little bit. We can put them under control, not completely, not 100%, but we can avoid being misled by our our own cognitive and ideological biases. So I show several examples of of charts that misled either liberals or conservatives because they were reading reading too much into the charts. They were inferring too much from from the charts. Are there any favorite examples that come to mind on this? Oh, I have many examples. So I, uh, again, it's difficult to explain them when I cannot show them. But, you know, I I have an entire discussion about election maps, election results maps, in which I compare a county level result, a map. And obviously the, the map is completely covered in red. 
80% of the map is covered in red and 20% of the map is covered in blue just because the democratic vote tends to concentrate on, on big cities and Republican vote is much more spread out. And I point out mm-hmm. that if your goal is to represent the pe- the number of people who voted either for, for President Trump or for candidate Clinton, that is a very bad representation of the data. You need to use other you need to use other kinds of graphics if you want to represent the popular vote. And I connect that to the idea of visual encoding. I say, you know, if the popular vote was 46% for Donald Trump and 48% for Hillary Clinton, you should not use this map because this map is showing an 80%, 20% split, 80% mm-hmm. red and 20% blue, right? And I put the two charts side by side and I explain that. But I have many others. Uh, for example, I have a, a, I have an example. I remember several a progressive a pundits in social media showing a chart that that shows that uh, the uh, the unemployment rate uh, started declining right after the Affordable Care Act was passed, Obamacare was passed, and and they were inferring that there was a causal relationship between those two things, the passing of the, of Obamacare and the drop in the unemployment rate. I said, well, it could it could be. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an economist, but the chart itself doesn't prove that. It just shows you that there is a coincidence in time between the passing of the ACA and the drop in the unemployment rate. You need more information in order to prove or to corroborate this connection. The chart alone is not enough. You are reading too much into the chart. Which is very interesting. And and you've touched on this already a little bit, talking about things like looking at the data source and being aware of our biases, our cognitive biases. But what role do consumers, right, do the readers of these sort of data-driven stories play? What should people be doing to be smart consumers of data? Well, that's actually one of the uh, one of the things that I discuss in the talk and that I, I'm also writing about in the new book. I believe that in some sense, and something that I hinted a little bit in the truthful art, uh, in some way, uh, every citizen in countries like ours is becoming a journalist. A journalist in the sense that we are all people who spread out information over our our networks, right? We see something on Twitter, Mm -hmm. we see something on Facebook, we like it and we post it in our own timelines. That's what that's one of the roles of journalism, one of the traditional roles of journalism, finding good information and then publish it and spread it among the, the, the people who may benefit from that information, right? Uh, without considering, at least on the, uh, when talking about citizens, that there is a, another critical role in that process, which is to assess the quality of what it is that we are sharing. So I think that um, I'm a great believer in personal responsibility, and I think that all of us need to become a little bit more wary about what it is that we share in social media just because we may be spreading misinformation. There is certainly a responsibility on the side of the people who create the charts that we see in social media, but there is also the responsibility of the citizen who sees that chart in social media and doesn't doesn't take even one minute to assess the quality of that chart before sharing it in social media. And I'm, 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 I'm... I'm, I, I am to blame on that as well. I have done that myself. Sharing we all are, uncrit- I think, right? Yeah, we all have right? done. We all are, yeah. right? But uh, the, point, the point that I make in the talk and in the new book is that if we avoid that, let's say, half of the time, right? Mm-hmm. That's a reduction on 50% on, on the amount of crap that we spread. And that's progress, <laughs> I think. Yes, 
Yeah, no, that's a great point, right? Pause and think about it. Yeah. Assess the quality before we. Yeah, and, it, uh, I, I point, and I point out that it doesn't take that much time. It's like one minute. Just take a look at it. Read it carefully for one minute. Take a look at the source. See if the source is reliable or not. All right. Take a look at what it is that is being measured. That doesn't take longer than two, three, five minutes. And then you can share it. Once you have assessed that, well, this looks legitimate. Even if it is not legitimate at the end, at least you have spent some time trying to make sure that it is. And then it is ethical to, to share it. So you've hinted at this idea that you know sometimes when graphs mislead, it's malicious, right? And intentionally, data is uh, distorted. But I think it's often also, or at least where I see it in a business setting, it's often accidental, right? Oh, yeah, Somebody, yeah. Uh, starts Mo- most bar. of the time, I would say that it is most yeah. of the time. I'm I'm also quite optimistic about about human nature, and I think that most people. Um, don't lie or don't want to lie in purpose. Yeah. But yeah. we end up creating charts that may mislead other people just because, and this is another very important principle in visualization, what you design is not what people see. And and we need to internalize that principle. And so it's not a it's not a one-way a process. I design this and you are going to read it the same way that I design it, or will infer what I'm what I want you to infer from the chart. There is interpretation involved, right? So most of the cases that I discuss in the talk and, and also in the new book are, I believe, unintentional. They are just the product of, you know, not being knowledgeable enough about the data or not knowing enough about, you know, certain principles of visualization, things like that. But they are not malicious at all. And, and is that the key to getting better? Is it getting to know our data better? Or, or what sort of tips do you have for those who are working with data, things that people should be conscious of or watching out for so that they're not unintentionally misleading their audiences? Well, there are, I mean, obviously learning a little bit about data Data reasoning helps a lot, and also learning, you know, some principles of visualization design, as flexible as they are, they still help mm-hmm. a lot, right? So uh, that can take you a long way. But there is no substitute for um, showing your graphic to people and observing how they read it and observe and talking to them right after, you know, cautiously about, you know, what it is that you show in the chart or what do you think that that you see here, right? I'll tell me about it, right? So even if it is not in a very formal way or in a very scientific way, that kind of testing can take you a long way. It can make you realize how bad we are at designing visualization sometimes and how bad we are at making assumptions as to what people are going to end up seeing in the visualization that we are doing. Yeah, when one thing that interesting that happens through those conversations as well is then you get comfortable talking about your data and talking about the assumptions around it, which I think can be enlightening uh, as part of the process yeah, as well. It can, yeah, it can be very enlightening for sure, yes. So one interesting, I don't know if paradox is the right word, uh, difference, let's say, that I see between companies and data analysts, uh, and if we counter that against you know, the data journalism space, for example, uh, is centered around storytelling with the data. Mm-hmm. So I think on one hand, when it comes to j- data journalism, for example, it seems that you have to tell a story, right? It's expected. Mm-hmm. But on the business side, this concept of storytelling sometimes comes under scrutiny. I think perhaps due to the belief that it's being used to somehow coerce or twist the data mm-hmm. or mislead. Mm-hmm. But there's a ton of opportunity there when it comes to being able to tell an effective story with data in the business world. So I'm curious in your thoughts here. Have you 
ever faced a negative reaction to this idea of storytelling when applied to data? And how can we increase acceptance to the idea of storytelling as it applies to data in a business setting? Well, I have been critical myself about the uh, the use of the word story, at least in the news industry. So in the news industry, at least, we use the word story to refer to things that are not stories. Um, so to, to refer to interactive visualizations that are exploratory in nature, right? I doubt that we can use the word story to refer to, to those kinds of products. Unless that you would use the word story in a very casual way. You say, well, I'm going to do my story or let me see what, what stories I can extract from the data, right? If you use, use the word in that casual way, then, then it is fine. I do it myself. I say, oh, I have discovered this interesting story when what I really want to say is that I have found very interesting interesting insights from the data that will be the right yeah. the right term it's to use. It's sort of like right? going back to your truth with a lowercase t, right? Exactly. That's story with yeah, a yeah, lowercase yeah. s. Story with lowercase, with lowercase s, right? Um, but when we talk about a story, I think that we can be a little bit more specific to what we mean, right? It's like, for okay. me, a story is some sort of um, linear narrative with an opening a middle point that has some sort of conflict that provokes interest, and then some sort of conclusion that wraps everything up in a satis in an emotionally satisfying way. That's what a story is, in my definition. I use a very narrow definition of, of a story. And in that sense, not every visualization or not every set of visualizations can be a story because some visualizations are not cannot be arranged in a narrative way. Sometimes it's just a path that forks in, in, in two or three different directions and you need to address those directions. Sometimes you cannot provide a, a conclusive conclusion or a satisfying conclusion. You, can ju you just need to leave the... The, the end uh, completely open-ended or uh, and, and sometimes what you get is not emotionally satisfying you end up having more, da more doubts about the about the data that you are that you're presenting so if we want yeah. to keep using the word story I'm fine with that but it's only that we shouldn't let and this is what I'm critical about when on the use of a story at least in the news industry we should not let the word story to we should not let the metaphor, of a story or the word story to frame the way that we think about information. Not every piece of information can be arranged linearly in the mm -hmm. way that traditional stories can. So if you want to keep using the word story, that's fine. I'm fine with that. I do it myself. But always keep in mind that a story is not necessarily linear. A story is not something that necessarily has a conclusion. A story is not necessarily something that has an emotional component or a human face or a human component uh, to the data, right? Now, is but there is there a yeah, When you ahead, do take it ahead. back... Yeah, no, this idea that where you do take it back to the story as you were describing it, right, with the shape and the emotional appeal, is, is there a place for that in the business world? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that, it, that, that there is a place for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But only if the data deserves it, right? So if you can frame your presentation or your document, your quarterly report or whatever it is that you are doing uh, as a story, then that's great, right? But you should, let, let's put it that way. The nature of the data or the nature of the insights that you extract from the data should guide your choice of how to frame the data or organize the data, not the other way around, yes. right? It's like the, 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 the insights come before the mold. It cannot be that you begin yes. with the mold and then you try to fit the data into the mold. Because if you do that, then you may end up, you know, 
telling a story that is wrong, right? Or telling a story that leaves aside, you know, caveats or exceptions or uncertainties that may wor- be worth including. Uh, Are there in your ways to do that though, where you can start out with a preconceived story and then analyze the data? Clearly, you have to be careful of bias there, right? Where you're not just looking at the data that backs up your story, but by knowing where we're going to go or where we might go with it before we analyze the data, can there be some value in that? Or do you think that's always a no Well, yeah, it, it can be, obviously. I, I, I'm not, I don't believe that data can be approached with no preconceptions. I think that we always begin with some sort of um, expectation as to what, what it is that you're going to find, right? could call that a conjecture, right? Or if you want to be more formal, a hypothesis, yep. even if it's not a formal hypothesis, it's still a conjecture. It's like a guess. I think that I'm going to find this in the data, right? But And, and that may bias or, or not your uh, your exploration of the of the data, right? The, the, the best people out there who play with data don't, don't, don't let that bias guide their, their choices, right? It's the data that drives their choices. But certainly you need that sort of... Um, some sort of um, a conjecture beforehand before you approach the data. I don't think that any human being can approach the data in the same way that a computer can, right? We have expectations. Yep. We have, you know, human nature is a very powerful drive and we are all, we all have expectations and, and pre- prejudgments. Yeah, which makes total sense. If we take this back earlier, so, you know, we were talking a little bit about story in a business setting or a uh, you know, story in data journalism, but before most people get there, they go to school. So when we look at university landscape as it relates to data visualization, are, are there programs out there that are getting this right in terms of prepping their data-minded students for the real world? I think that there are. I think that there, there are very good places to, depending on, on what it is that you want to specialize in, there, there are good places where you can study, right? Beginning with uh, on the East Coast, I don't know, New York University, where Enrico Bertini is, the Department of Computer mm-hmm. Science. Uh, in journalism, you have a very good data journalism program at Columbia University, which focuses on computational journalism and, and, ha- and, also, and also has uh, a data visualization component. Stanford University on the West Coast has a very good data journalism program. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, ourselves, the University of Miami, we have uh, several programs that focus on on data visualization, and we are about to launch a master's degree in in data science, which will have a branch specializing in data visualization. So, I think that the uh, the, the the amount of of offerings that you have out there is is increasing. Um, so, yeah, there are good places. And so, and you're optimistic, then, would you say in what's happening and, and what's going to happen when it comes to being able to groom more people, if you will, to, to be smart about looking at data, analyzing data, visualizing data. I, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I think that, um, first of all, the offerings in universities can be helpful for that, but also the amount of, 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 of free training on the on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. The, the amount of courses that you can find online, right? Nowadays, uh, there has been an explosion on that. Also, in the in the past few years, through you know platforms such as uh, Coursera or places like, or even the the MOOCs that I'm doing at the moment, I just launched a new introduction to visualization MOOC recently, which is going to begin 
in June. So uh, there's plenty of opportunities for anyone who, who wants to start learning this stuff. And can you say a little bit more about the MOOC for folks who may not be familiar with Oh, the yeah. yeah or, sorry about that. Yeah. So uh, a MOOC is, is basically uh, the abbreviation of a massive open online course. It's basically a free course that is open, free to anyone who wants to take it. Um, it consists of um, four weeks of training, combining video lectures and uh, video tutorials about how to use several freely available um, data visualization tools, uh, chapters from several books, and so on and so forth. And I provide a, a short introduction to data visualization for for communication. And we announced it um, uh, th yesterday. Uh, and it's going it's going to begin in June. It's going to begin June the June the first or something like that. I don't remember the exact date, but it's going to begin quite soon. It's something that I do periodically. So I do one of one one or two of these courses every every year. And they're they're quite popular. I'm very happy about that. I usually get more than one thousand, two thousand. I once had like five thousand people taking it at the oh, same wow. time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's very basic level. It's, it's, it's elementary elementary principles of data visualization. I thought that no one was going to be interested in them. So, you know, I said, you know, who's interested <laughs> in data visualization? It's only the nerds, right? And the nerds already know the basics of data visualization. And it turned out that, you know, thousands of people from hundreds of countries are, are taking these courses. Where can people learn more about the one that you have started? Well, perhaps you can provide the link in the, uh, in the page of the, uh, yes. uh, of the podcast, but if they want to learn more, uh, they can they can uh, Google uh, the Knight Center at the University of Texas. That will be knightcenter.utexas.edu, and the course should be announced in the first or, or second uh, blog post in the Knight Center of Texas, of the University of Texas's website in there. It's called... Um, Introduction to Visualization for a Storytelling and Discovery or something like that. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. We'll find that and link to it. Let's shift gears. So thinking back to that initial conversation that you and I had on the topic of writing books, you've mentioned a couple of times you're working on a new one, which is super exciting. What can you tell us about it? It's similar to the, to the visual trumpery talk. So I joke that in the talk that the visual trumpery talk is like the trailer for the for the book it it, okay. it, it gives the it gives away the structure of of the book so the book will probably title something like how charts lie and how they tell the truth or how charts okay. lie or, and how they can make you smarter instead. So I, I provide the, the two sides of the coin, right? It's like charts lie very often because we love to lie to ourselves. But at the same time, if you become a better reader of charts, charts are wonderful tools to discover truths about your environments and your your cities and your neighborhoods and your communities, right? So the book is basically a, an introduction to visualization for the general public. It's like how to, how to read charts. And I discuss all these principles and I, I, I talk about the myths surrounding charts, such as a picture is worth a thousand words, etc. I give an mm -hmm. introduction to um, uh, visualization grammar, again, the, uh, the, the, the symbolization systems and the uh, encoding systems. It, it sounds very boring when I describe it this way, but <laughs> I, I have tons of examples <laughs> in the book that are, that are a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, I'm having a lot of fun writing it, yeah. 
That's fantastic. It, fun writing it is uh, probably a concept that sounds foreign to many people, right? Because writing a book is a massive endeavor. And this is, is it going to be your third? Is that right? It's going to be the fourth. Uh, fourth, the, okay. The fourth book about, actually, it will be the fifth if we count our my PhD dissertation. Uh, yeah, I think that counts. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it will be the fifth book about visualization that I write. Yeah, but it's the first one that I write for the general public. So it's not it's not a specialized book. It's not it's not like the functional art or the truthful art, which is written specifically uh, for data journalists and data analysts and data designers. This one is for my friends who know very little about charts, but still need to be able to read graphs and maps on a regular basis. Or for you know, for my family who sees you know people who see maps and charts in in online publications on mm -hmm. a regular basis, or they see charts published in social media. So it's a book that is intended to prepare you to become a more uh, critical reader of those kinds of visual products that you see every day. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I can't wait to it, until it's done and I can get my hands on it and read it and uh, share it with my friends and family too. Uh, it's not a book for you. You, you probably know everything that I have. To <laughs> oh, I imagine but... <laughs> I could learn something too. Can you tell us about your creative process when it comes to tackling a project like this? Uh, I just sit and write. So yeah. it's not, it's super simple to understand. I just, I just sit and start working. And I got, I had this. A conversation online the other day with Jer uh, Thorpe, who is a famous visualization yes, yeah. designer, very talented artist who works with data. And he asked for some suggestions because he's thinking about writing his yeah, first book. That. I'm super excited about that, mm -hmm. by the way. So Jer, mm -hmm. if, you're, yes. if you're listening to this, please, please get to work. I want to see that book. But I, he asked for suggestions. And I said, you know, the way that I do it is just I... I just open up the computer, I open the blank page, and I start writing. It doesn't really matter that what I come up with that day is crap. At least it is progress. You can always go back to it and edit it and change it later on. But what really matters is to get started. Once you get started, it's just the ball rolling downhill. You just need to keep going and going and going and going. Now, the critical... Any yeah, habits or rituals, though? Uh -huh. Do you, Is it a certain time of day you write or a certain place you write or how do you plan the structure? I, I So I plan, yes. So I, I usually begin with a very um, rough and flexible table of contents. So I usually begin with a list okay. of things that I want to write about. But that changes down the road quite a lot. The end product ends up being something not completely different, but quite different to the original, to the original plan. So it's like you begin with that skeleton, the arrangement of the bones of that skeleton can change down the road, and then you flesh it out. And while you're fleshing it out, you may discover that one bone doesn't fit on the right joint, and then you need to mm -hmm. change the joint, right? Um, place, I, 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 I work at home. There are people who are able to write anywhere and everywhere. I can't. I, I need to work at home. I need to write at home. So I spend quite a lot of time at home. That doesn't mean that I have a specific place. I can write in my home office or if the weather is good, which is usually the case in Miami, I sit outside. I sit in my backyard with my computer. I bring my big screen over there and I set up, set up my office in the backyard and I write there. Um, I prefer to write, but again, again, this depends on the kind of person that you are, but I am uh, what I usually call a one-day, one-activity person. That means that I need to devote every day to a single main activity. So I may devote, for example, one or two hours every day to answer email, 
retweet things and you know do random things. But then the rest mm-hmm. of the day, four, six hours, seven hours, doesn't really matter. I devote those hours just to one single activity. That can be preparing for classes, preparing for workshops. But then I also have my writing days. So I have at least two days a week that are mostly just writing. Um, because I need to concentrate deeply in order to in order to write again. I need to get the ball the ball rolling. So I need to get started, which usually is what takes longer and takes more effort. And once you get started, you just keep writing and writing and writing for six hours uh, straight. And at the end of the day, you will have five or six pages ready to be edited. And do you have anybody who's reading it as you're going along? Usually, yes. So I have uh, I have friends who uh, who I, I, I send the uh, send whatever I write. To people who have uh, usually statisticians and data scientists. So I'm not a statistician myself. So I'm always very wary about misusing jargon or explaining something in the wrong way or in an unclear way. So I usually let friends take a look at it while I'm writing it. And then, you know, my editor also will, will take a look at it at some point and give me tons of feedback. Um, that I will need mm-hmm. to implement, obviously, and copy editors also at the end. But it's usually friends during the process. Back to this hack of doing one thing a day. How, how long have you been doing that? Or when did you find out that that was uh, going to be something that worked for you? Well, I I, I, dis- I discovered it years ago, many, many years ago. Um, I think that it began in college, when I was in college. It is only that I, I am very... Um, I feel that um, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky by being a a professor because being a professor gives you the flexibility to organize your own time. Uh, There are certain dates, days, sorry, there are certain days in the week that are basically organized for you, right? Those will be the teaching days, right? I teach two Mm -hmm. days a week, Tuesday and Thursday. So I call those my teaching days. And those are the days that I usually devote to teaching and preparing for classes and grading papers and having meetings with the students, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Wednesday, the day in the middle, is usually the day that I devote to meetings with uh, people, uh, Monday, I call it my Google day because it's the day that I devote to talk to all these designers in this Google collaboration. Mm-hmm. And then I usually write, um, I usually spend some time writing on Wednesday, Friday mainly, and then Saturday. Those are usually the days that, that I write, unless that I'm traveling somewhere or giving a lecture. Sunday is, a, is the day that I take off every, my day off every, mm-hmm. every week. So the thing is that I discovered it many, many years ago, but I could only implement this kind of organization seriously after I became a professor. Before, I was able to do it partially. So when I was working, for example, in the news industry in Spain and then in Brazil, etc., I could usually devote one day to writing. So I work five days a week, and then the sixth day, usually Saturday, was the day that I devoted to to writing. So you, can, I believe that anybody can can implement this structure, at least in a limited way. Well, and when it comes down to this, so you're writing basically two days a week, but pretty intensely, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, one or two days long, a week, yes. Okay, one to two days a week. How long will it take you from start to finish to, to get this book done, do you think? Uh, it usually takes me, well, this one will take me around six months or something like that to get it done. Because if you count the amount of words that you write every single week, I... I usually write, I believe, around um, perhaps 2,000, 3,000 words a week if I only write one day. And if you multiply that by 25 weeks, which is half a year, uh, you will end up with 70,000 words or something like that, which is a full book, right? My books are not that long, 
but uh, I need to count in also uh, the amount of time that it, I devote to copy editing. So yeah, that's a, a pretty reasonable. You, the way that I do it, by the way, and I believe that and again, this is something that anybody can can apply. And it's a lesson that it took me quite a while to to come up with. Is that you need to set your set set goals for yourself, weekly goals, saying you know, and be very strict with that. Saying I need to write at least two thousand words this week. It doesn't really matter if I write it write them in one day, you know, one hour per day. It doesn't really matter. The goal is two thousand words per week, no matter what, and no matter what whether those words are completely crap. Again, that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. You can always go Just back to them out. and edit them or eliminate them if you need to, right? But at least you have your two thousand words. Two thousand words plus two thousand words multiplied by twenty-five weeks is fifty thousand words, which is basically the length of my books. Right, so that's the way you do it. These are super insightful and helpful tri- uh, tips. Uh, I'm going to try actually <laughs> applying some of these. <laughs> Uh, so Alberto, this has been tremendous. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're super busy and I am very thankful uh, to you for carving out the time for this. Uh, I have one more question yeah. for you if you have time yeah, for it. Yeah, of course it. I have. Yeah, I have time. I'm always trying to find excuses not to write. <laughs> so I have to write and this is a great excuse Well, I don't want to be that write. excuse. <laughs> so I, in my workshops, one of the things that we often talk about is how in school we learn a lot about language and we learn a lot about math. So on the language side, we learn how to put words together into sentences and into stories. And on the math side, we learn how to make sense of numbers. But it's rare that these two things get paired, that we really learn how to tell effective stories with numbers. Now, as we've mentioned, you and I are both parents. So when it comes to bridging this gap, what advice would you give a parent who wants to help their child become a more effective data storyteller at an early age? Well, I would contend uh, with your characterization of the educational system. I don't think that we learn math well. We learn arithmetic and we learn uh, algebra and we learn computation computational methods and algorithmic methods to methods to solve problems. But I don't think that we learn to reason about numbers correctly. And that mm, is that goes way beyond um, way beyond mere math. It, it it goes to what you are describing, which is the pairing the pairing of quantitative methods of, of analysis and non quantitative methods of analysis or humanistic methods of analysis, which is what you what you refer to as writing and reading. Right? It's like we need to pair both. Now, how to educate children in doing this a little bit better? I don't know. I have no idea. And I perhaps I can base my own teachings of what I have learned myself by making tons of mistakes and, and finding a lot of hurdles down the road, which is I learned by doing. So I don't think mm-hmm. that I don't think that visualization or anything in li- or writing or anything in life is learned just by studying. We learn by doing, and we learn by making mistakes and then getting those mistakes uh, corrected. And we learn by copying also, by copying other people. One mm-hmm. of the recommendations, by the way, that I give to my students every semester at the University of Miami, most of my students come to my classes knowing nothing about graphics or design or maps or charts, et cetera, et cetera. And say, you know, when I began my career, back in Spain, in a newspaper called La Voz de Galicia, which is a regional newspaper in Spain, I was given this advice, copy someone. 
and by copying someone is not that doesn't mean you know plagiarize anyone it means take a look at the work of people in general you know expose yourself to the work as, uh, of as many people as possible choose the visualization or graphics designers who you like the most then start copying what they do in the sense of the in the sense of a style in the sense that they tell the way that they tell the story the way that they arrange the information the way that they use typography and color and composition things like that try to match their style in that sense and then you will start developing a sense of why those ways of doing things are so appealing or why those ways of doing things work so well you will start developing an abstract understanding of that i don't think that Abstract thinking precedes practical thinking. I think that is the other way around. Practical thinking precedes abstract thinking. So in order to think deeply about how we do things, we need to do things first, all right? And that's one of the um, I, how, uh, that's one of the things that I, I think I try to think about how to apply to to children in general. How we do these? Well, perhaps one of the ways is to. Uh, teach students how to how to do charts and how to do maps. Even if they are not great maps, we can use those as lessons, right? So, uh, there and there are plenty of plenty of people trying to do this. I think, for example, yeah. um, there is a wonderful free visualization tools, which is is one of the ones that I I recommend in my online courses and in my classes called uh, Insight with a Z, not with an S. Insight. Okay. Uh, which is a, a freely available data visualization and data analysis tool that was created by the Department of Statistics at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. The same people, basically, who created the R programming language, developed a, the, the same program, developed this tool. And this is, uh, you should give it a try because it's a delightful tool. It's so simple and so easy to use. And it lets you do so many things with data, calculating averages, seeing distributions, doing land charts and maps and graphs, etc. It's super simple. And they created it with a specific goal in mind of teaching the statistics to high schoolers. Just because statistics look so dry if you teach it the uh, if you teach it the uh, the traditional way teaching the computational methods behind you know statistics if you teach it graphically i believe that more and more people will get on board and will start under will start understanding these principles i, I for example I, I try to encourage people to uh, teach children to draw that's another another good thing yes. my my little daughter for example she draws quite a lot and and I, I try to praise uh, praise her whenever she draws something. Um, yeah. that, that's well, and, uh, my mind was going there when you were talking before about you know pick somebody's work and copy it and, yeah. and emulate that. Yeah, that, emulate that. Yeah, copy kids that. doing that. Yeah. It's know. like that's yeah. that's how I learn. By the way, that's how I learn the little bit of I know the little I know about drawing because I, I draw a little bit. I'm not a great artist, but I can draw a little bit. I can sketch things out. The little that I know about about drawing, I learned it by copying superhero comic books when I was a teenager. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's how I learn. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can still bring this back to kids, right? Of the, you know, how do you, how do you learn? How do you do this? You, you practice, you make mistakes, you find somebody, you copy, you draw. Yeah. You uh, try to do it. And tips. it's also important to get exposed to, to the things that you want yes. to learn. So if you want your children to learn data visualization and maps, show them maps and show them charts mm -hmm. and, you know, read them together and, you know, that's the way we do it. I would do it. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Alberto, thank you. This has been amazing. Are, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, um, you know, yes. If you are if you are in data visualization, please keep publishing great work out there and share it with everybody and ask for 
a positive I mean for for constructive feedback I think that everybody can benefit from from your from your work from anybody's work and that would be one thing if you don't work in data visualization or you don't do charts but are still listening to this podcast please remember that visualization is not magic um, I learned to do visualization and I believe that that means that anybody and everybody can learn to do visualization given that you read you know some books and start applying the principles from those books and start using a couple of a couple of visualization tools and uh, you know try to use visualization to inform people not to push agendas or sell ideas or to promote your own ideology but to provide your best understanding of what the truth is and again truth with a lowercase t that's what i would say i guess yeah, that's excellent advice. And how can people follow you and stay up to date with what you're working on? My Twitter account is usually the best way to get a hold of me. So that's at Alberto Cairo or uh, my personal weblog, which is the title of my first book published in America, The uh, the Functional Art, thefunctionalart.com. That's my personal weblog. I usually post news in there. Whatever it is that I'm working on, I usually announce it either on Twitter or on my personal weblog. Great. And I'll make sure that we link to those in the show notes as well. Alberto, it has been a pleasure. I've had so much fun talking with you today. Likewise. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure for to be here. Thank you so much.